This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Support for 100 Words, the podcast, comes from Talenti. When Talenti makes gelato and sorbetto, they tend to get a little overzealous. Do they need to use so many raspberries in their Roman raspberry sorbetto that the machine broke? Did they need to try 25 different chai teas to find the perfect spice blend for their vanilla chai gelato? Did they have to invent giant mint steepers to make their Mediterranean mint super minty? Does their obsessiveness make Talenti, Gelato, and Sorbetto the greatest? You be the judge. But yes, it does make them the greatest. And they're also the judge. Talenti, the delicious is in the details. And trust me, this stuff is incredible. I've been eating it all summer, and I have to work out a lot, but it's it's great. Trust me. Dive in. You'll love it. Now, here's the show. I'm Ray, and you are listening to 100 Words or Less, the podcast. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm back from vacation, and I apologize that this episode is one day late, but, um, you know, sometimes uh, life gets in the way. I totally thought I was going to be able to pull the episode off and re- record on the beach or something, but, uh, yeah, that just didn't happen. It's uh, it's busy, you know? You're you're in Hawaii, you're hanging out with your fam, and uh, you, you got to visit, you know, Pearl Harbor and all of those uh, tourist locations, and uh, that's what we were doing, so... You don't care about that. You care about independent music, right? That's why you're here. Well, if you're accidentally found the show, then welcome. Maybe you're just here for the insightful discussion with people who you may or may not know their music. But hopefully most of you are engaged with this whole beautiful subculture that uh, we love to hang out with and in and around and learn more about. So we got this awesome episode today. Brett Titar from the Juliana Theory, previously of Zao, and uh, the dude... I, I've worked with him before because, uh, let's see, the record label that I used to work at, which we will speak about in the interview, it was called Abacus Recordings. It was a division of Century Media Records. We put out the Juliana Theory's uh, last record, Deadbeat, Sweetheart Beat, before they, you know, <clears throat> broke up and now they're kind of back, but, you know, they postponed their summer touring plans to, if I'm not mistaken, to write some new material and tour off that as well. I don't know. There's a lot of stuff going on with them, but. We talk about the tour towards the end of the interview, and clearly, if you're paying attention to uh, you know the news sites and what have you, you know that that tour has been postponed. So um, you know it's still relevant. I'm still leaving it in there, but I uh, just had to put that in there. And this this was an interesting conversation because I led with a question that I thought was going to be kind of you know lighthearted and, and something that maybe he doesn't get asked very much about anymore. Which it sounds like he doesn't, but. Uh, <laughs> I just didn't expect to spend as much time as we did on it. It was funny. I kind of just want to throw it out there and be like, oh, a nice little, uh, you know, two minute discussion about this thing. And then it really got into, um, you know, debunking rumors and myths. And it, it was a really interesting conversation. And Brett was a great sport about it. And, you know, I wasn't coming at him with being like, hey, why are you uh, why are you a jerk like this? Why did you do this? <laughs> I definitely was just like, I remember this. And he was like, no, you don't. It's like, oh, OK, interesting. But Anyways, that's what we got going on for the show today, and um, yeah, I, I, I don't really have much else to say other than the fact that, um, yeah, I'm tired, I'm uh, excited about the rest of the summer, there's uh, some good shows, good movies, you know, hopefully you're spending the time the way you want to be spending it, with people you care about, consuming art, consuming fun stuff, and uh, experiences, right? That's what we're all here on this weird planet for, so anyways, that's what we got for today, and um, yeah, here's Brett. I'm 
I'm actually going to go very far back to, uh, I want to say, this is, it was probably uh, Hellfest 2000. So this was like yes. ancient history. But And I, I know this is going to seem really minor and funny, but at the same time, this was really uh, kind of, uh, you know, it, it ruffled a lot of people the wrong way, but I think in retrospect, it was hilarious that it did. So, anyways, you, Julieta Theory played Hellfest, which was obviously a predominantly hardcore festival. Um, but it, it seems insane to me that so many people were focused on the fact that you wore a headset microphone. Like, you were not singing via, like, you know, a, a traditional stand-up, you know, stand microphone or whatever. Um, and so Hold many, on. Yeah. Hold on. Before... before <laughs> this is the most insane urban legend of all time Dude, I, was- I swear on my i swear on my hockey team which i care about more than anything else on my dead grandma's grave right and anything else that you want to know there is absolutely no chance in my life i've ever sung with a headset mic and if you could find a picture of that or if anybody can find a picture i will i will give you ten thousand dollars cash right now <laughs> i had it and i wore one in-ear monitor at that point in time okay and it hung out of my ear in a way that in certain photos to the uninitiated and to people who at that point in time it was kind of like a a new thing and it was certainly a new thing in hardcore so in a couple pictures it kind of stuck out in a way that sort of looked like one of those super small headset microphones but what never made any sense to me about that hilarious rumor that was started by an online blog that i won't mention (laughs) I always had a mic in my hand. I was always holding a mic. So how on earth would I have a headset mic and a handheld mic? But nobody has ever found a photo of this. Nobody's ever been able to prove it. But it's crazy because what we have we have a, a blog that basically said that I was wearing a headset microphone. And it was something that was so like a part of the pop culture at that point in time in like scene music that that rumor basically became codified into some uh, alternative fact, which is exactly what it was. And so we have a bunch of people now who, because they were 14 or 15 or 16 when they saw a show and they were standing 80 rows back and they don't really remember it, it's a hazy memory, really think they saw something that they didn't see because we can implant memories in our brains. I mean, that's just a, a normal thing. But I promise you on all fronts, I have done many stupid things in my career. I've done many things I'm embarrassed about, but I've never once used a headset microphone. I would have no reason to. I'm not. I, I'm not a drummer like that. I would like that. I would need one. But yeah, absolutely. I had an in-ear monitor. But no, at Hellfest, I, yeah, that's crazy. Right. Well, so well, that's- I, I can't believe we're starting this on. We are starting this podcast on on this topic, which is literally nothing irks me more than this topic. So. No, yeah, no, no, I'm bummed. I now I'm bummed officially. Good. Well, I, I, the, my intention, <laughs> my intention was not to bum you out, but my intention because I, I personally, I was in attendance there. My, my band, we did not play Hellfest, but we toured out there and played some shows around it. So, and I was at the time, I want to say, so yeah, I was like 19 or 20 years old. Um, so, but I, you know, I, I, I totally, I, I 100% trust you, believe you, and I definitely think there's obviously a lot of revisionist history stuff that that played into this, where it was like. I could easily see exactly what you're talking about where like something, you know, like your inner monitor was not, you know, was hanging out or whatever. But there's one there's one photo on the Internet, I feel like that I've seen where because I would just wear one and had this really thin little cable and I would tape it like duct tape it to the back of my shirt. 
And there's this one picture where it's hanging out in a really weird way, and the angle and this one photo right. kind of looks a little bit like something, but I'm holding a mic in my hand. Yeah. But still, it's like, yeah, I'm not really bummed out. It's a joke at this point, but right. the fact that, like, that people, like, that gets brought up on a regular basis. I'm like, you know, there's so many, like, actual things you could make fun of my band for. There's so many things you <laughs> could be like, why did you write this one song? It, it sucks, and I would agree. Or, But when it's something that is totally never happened and just, like, <laughs> right. uh, I guess I should just run with it. And, and in fact, uh, like, we were joking. I had a text chain with a band a couple, like, a month ago, and I was like, when we uh we were playing we're playing um the warp tour rewind cruise and it happens to be on halloween mm -hmm. and i was like i'm going to dress up as brett detter with a headphone microphone for <laughs> halloween that year dude that that would that would have been incredible and it, the 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 crux of me bringing it up like this is because i feel like those those instances of things happening within the context of a music scene that you know uh, you know the urban legend travels and things that are are not true get perpetuated i find so funny because it you know it it only could exist in a certain time and a place you know um where it, it was the internet existed but not to the extent of where it does today and you know clearly the show was documented but not to the extent of how shows are documented now so it's like i just found it like it really only could have I guess spread and happen during that you know two to four year period where that music was happening and so I don't know I just find it uh, I find it so funny that you know yeah both you and I could talk about it you know 15 16 years later and be like just as vivid as being like oh yeah like that happened and you're like hell no it didn't happen and it's like oh yeah 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 no you're probably right it did not happen but that's just the way that people remembered it so anyways but I, I appreciate that <laughs> that trip down memory um, well, I, I think like I actually feel like somebody has YouTube footage of that show somewhere. Maybe not YouTube, but I, I'm. We might even have a video um, right. in my in my parents' attic. So someday, if I'm really bored, I'm gonna go find that video and send it to you. And right, it's like that. You'll be like, okay, I remembered it. You know, but it's all it's right. it's hilarious. Well, I think it's one of those things too, where it's like it's it's like the Zapruder tape of the JFK assassination, where it's just like, all right, now now we'll get to the bottom of this. <laughs> It's it's definitely that Im it's definitely that important within um, you know with with culture. I mean, my headset mic definitely ranks right up there with Roswell and uh, you know and and all of the other hidden secrets that are classified by the government. Totally and totally. whatnot. The, yeah. you, you know what? The Illuminati probably has the videotape of that show. So I, I, <laughs> I wouldn't I, I wouldn't go I wouldn't go find it in your, your parents' attic. <laughs> I think actually what what might have happened too is that we are probably. We're 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 experiencing the Mandela effect, and um, I actually did have a headset mic in an alternate reality, but then they went back and you know, like just like the Berenstein and the Berenstain Bears, for some people's reality, I had a headset mic, and in other people's, I didn't. And the way that the Mandela effect has affected me is such that I, I don't remember it. <laughs> Dude, I love this. This is we we really got to the bottom of this. I appreciate that, Brett. <laughs> Oh my! It's but so, the, good. so and you know, kind of stepping even further back and reflecting on on you as a person. I know you were born in you know rural Pennsylvania, um, 
and you know you, you for all you know the interviews that you've done and, and the uh, how you've spoken about your family life is that you know it was very sort of you know idyllic like traditional upbringing and everything like that but you know you weren't connected to culture in the way that large major metropolitan areas are um, you know do you reflect on like kind of you know smaller slash slow slow town life as being something that's like hey I was glad I had that experience or was it like man it really felt like a cultural desert when I was growing up there no I if I'm being totally honest I, it didn't feel like a cultural desert because um you uh, like you don't know what you got till it's gone, and I guess you don't know what you what you have until like what what else is out there if you don't go anywhere else, and, and if you haven't seen a lot of the rest of the world. And I remember like <clears throat> the first time I went to you know I remember the very first time I went to New York City, and I think if I'm not mistaken, yeah, the first time I ever went there, I took a bus and I arrived at Port Authority, and I got out at Port Authority. And I just remember even just seeing all the magazines that were on display, even the covers of the magazines alone at that point in my life was culture shock because that's, you know, it's the fashion capital of the world and everything else. And I, I was just like, just remember being like, whoa, wow, that like, that's totally different. And, you know, I think being in, in such a small town when, we would go on vacations, but we would go, you know, we'd still go to places that were seemed pretty culturally similar to where I was from and, and not usually very far distances. So you don't have Instagram and you don't have Facebook and you don't have MySpace, whatever those things were to kind of let you see at a moment's glance what's happening at other places around the world. You get, if you're lucky, because we didn't even get a Barnes and Nobles where I was from until probably... I was 16 years old. So, you know, you'll see Rolling Stone magazine. You get to see something that was published three, four weeks ago and finally makes it to, you know, makes it to the shelves and it's somewhere in your town. But you, like, definitely didn't really know a lot about that outside of pretty, you know, it was, I was pretty much a country kid for, for the most part. So, yeah, just, yeah, you don't. Don't really, you don't really know what's out there until you get to see it. Yeah, experience absolutely. it. Absolutely. And um, I forget, you have brothers and sisters, or are you an only child? I have a younger brother. He's three years younger than me. Okay. Um, and did uh, it, did he take a completely different life path in regards to music or anything like that, or are you guys? Uh, is he doing similar things to you? My brother is the smart one. Um, Got it. He chose a totally different path, and he is all the better for it. My brother is an entrepreneur, and he's like super smart. And he's started he started a company when he was sixteen, and he was definitely musical. I remember he had a band, like he he played in a band for a little while, and he played drums, and he was like he was really good, like naturally. He was naturally gifted on drums, and I could never play drums. I never had the coordination, but my my brother just was, like, really good, like, right off the bat. And his first show opened for, I think, actually, I, can't, I think actually opened for the Juliana Theory, or might have opened for Zayo. I can't remember. It opened 
for one of the bands I was in at the time, mm-hmm. and he had this like totally crazy stage presence, and he w- he killed it. But I think he realized soon. I don't know, like he just the band thing didn't work out or whatever, and he just discovered, um, you know, like he did a he started a company that was like internet internet based, and he just kind of like discovered that world and nice he's just yeah so he was the smart one and right um, you you pursue you pursued life of the arts (laughs) yes exactly um and so was you know as you started to experience you know band life and you know playing in you know pensive and zao and everything like that um did your you know how did your parents react to you doing this stuff that was probably very you know uh foreign to them and the idea of you know playing in a band and touring probably didn't make a whole lot of sense like was there uh you know any kind of uh you know turmoil or strife within the uh the context of the house that they were like oh no brett brett's going down a a road that we don't approve of when i was really young there were multiple sit downs that I actually remember sitting in a restaurant. I'm not sure what restaurant it was. And my and me telling my parents, I was probably about 16, that I just wanted to play music for my job and that I didn't really care if I went to college. And and I, I probably didn't say I want to play music. I was probably like, I want to be in a band, which sounds even worse. And I remember them basically telling me what any logical parent would tell their kid which is just uh that doesn't sound like that great of a plan you you can't just do that you have to have a backup or you have to have a real you know you want to have a real job and if i had a kid right now knowing what i know and they had that conversation with me i would never want to you know trample on their dreams but I'd probably tell them the same thing. I tell, I, I, it half jokingly, but every time a kid asks me or somebody younger says, uh, you know, I'm thinking about trying to go into music full time or do you have any advice for me? I'm, I always say, yeah, go to college. And, and then I kind of just laugh because I basically kind of feel like that, but you know, yeah. that's so my, so my parents were, were, uh, were definitely they ended up being they ended up being incredibly supportive and and anybody would tell you that they were they were definitely the juliana theory band parents we practiced for the majority of our time we practiced in their basement mm-hmm. my mom was our accountant my dad built us multiple like like a, you know, he built us like a shed for our equipment they he built us uh we customized a van my dad did most of that work i mean like they they ended up being incredibly supportive but at the beginning you know especially when i was playing metal with like vocals that sounded like demons cackling yep i think they were a little bit horrified especially like when the neighbors were like hearing these sounds come from their basement in the country so right yeah. <laughs> yeah totally they're like hey this makes no sense whatsoever uh, i i don't i don't even know what to do with this I mean, especially too because i imagine like did, did you come from like a religious household where you know were you raised christian or was that something that came later 
No, I did. I did come. Yeah, I, I, I was raised in a religious household for sure, and so yeah, the sounds of right when, when the sounds of music that sounds like <laughs> demon vocals doesn't exactly register yeah. necessarily. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a twofer when you come from a religious household and then you decide to play, you know, like really aggressive, um, you know, satanic sounding music, especially because, you know, at that at that time, too, it's like we were coming off of the notion that, uh, you know, everything that happened in the 80s in regards to, you know, Slayer and all, all the bands that exist within the context of, you know, w- worshiping demons and the devil and Satan and everything. And then you're like, well, no, this is like this is Christian based hardcore. And your parents are just like, that doesn't mean anything us what does that mean <laughs> i remember my dad had this my dad was a school teacher and it and it's odd because my dad is one of the biggest music fans i know and he uh, i think a lot of my obsession with music came from my dad and from my parents and he always listened to like soul music and you know r&b and a lot of motown so he's a huge music person but i remember he had this article that was posted up in his office at at his school i don't even think he would even remember this but it it was very vivid to me had this like kind of curmudgeon looking old dude and and it just said something like i don't remember the exact headline but it was something to the effect of rock and roll music is destroying our youth or something and my dad had cut it out and like posted it up and so here i am as like extra young and thinking like rock and roll is destroying like youth it's it's evil and here i'm like that's like you know the thing i was most into but it's just like yeah it's just I don't know that, that that so that was at least partially where uh right. you know, where I came from originally. But then somehow, yeah, like my but I think a lot of it too is my dad is like they've they you know embraced they embraced their son being in a, a rock band many 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 years ago. And I, I yeah, like I said, I don't think he he wouldn't even remember that. But but my dad is really funny too because he when I always have this conversation with friends, so I was. Last week, I was out with some buddies, and we were hanging out in the desert, and we all, all musicians, and we just ended up having this conversation about music, and and we were all talking about everybody's, how did you get into music? And everybody's like, the Beatles, the Beatles, the Beatles, my parents love the Beatles, my mom love, and then they get to me, and they're like, and I'm like, well, my dad said, quote, I can't stand the Beatles, they ruin music with their, with their whiny voices or no their nasally voices in their shaggy hair because my dad was like super into the four tops and the temptations and marvin gay Smokey robinson like and doo-wop and stuff like that like real soul music where of course like the beatles were trying they played some of those songs and they were so influenced by that stuff but they were you know british white dudes so they're not gonna they're not gonna sound like that but 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 my dad heard that it's just like this like jangly, you know, like nasally sounding white dudes, and you know that's probably I ended up making music that was definitely closer to certainly nasally sounding white dudes. So. <laughs> right? Yeah, he's like, I don't understand what you're going for at all, man. You, you, you're playing music that is just—it's straight up terrible. I can't get it. <laughs> that's so funny. 
Um, you, you've always struck me too as a person, just kind of you know, um, from the, the limited time that you know I, I interacted with you back in the day, um, and just kind of you know the way that you carry yourself in general. You seem to uh, be a, a confident person. Um, was that something that was always kind of you know in you? Like, were you comfortable in your own skin as you were kind of you know getting into high school and stuff like that, or was that something that uh, you were able to get as you grew older? No, no, I'm not. I'm not even confident now. I was never. Okay. And that was totally. That's always got me into trouble. At, at least as far as like being. That is one thing. That is not an alternative fact that we can talk about from that era in music. Is I always got the reputation back then, especially coming from hardcore, as like Brett thinks he's better than everybody, and Brett is a rock star when the actual truth of the matter was I was unbelievably socially awkward and I was extremely shy, but the way that I would, I also believe that when you got on a stage and your job is to perform that you're supposed to put on a show. So the only way I could do that for the most part was to kind of be larger than life version of myself. And so I would just try to like, basically especially when the theory started and we started out we were just kind of we thought we were tongue-in-cheek joke kind of like we weren't serious so i try to put on this like my own version of whatever i thought a rock star was supposed to do and it was like playing his character and then people would meet me afterwards and i would be incredibly quiet and aloof because i was really really shy and those two didn't like people didn't just like that just didn't make sense that didn't compute to people that like that oh i'm going and i'm putting on this show and i'm like whatever prancing around the stage like i think i own it and then 10 minutes later i i could barely hold a conversation with people and that was viewed as like arrogance when it was really you know the polar opposite i i remember being Another thing that goes back to my parents is I have extremely vivid memories of many, many times at social functions, my mom pulling me aside beforehand or in the middle of and saying, hey, Brett, you should really go out of your way to try to talk to some people here because everybody thinks you don't like them because you don't talk to anybody. And I said, well, mom, well, they don't talk to me. They don't talk to me because they don't like me. They don't talk to me first. And if they liked me, they would talk to me. And so literally most of my childhood was me being extremely quiet. And, and I was always the guy who stood at the back of a party or stood on the, at the back wall of a room and just like kind of like observed. And I was really, it was really difficult for me to um, put myself out there as far as to like introduce myself or to say hi. I've had to work really hard to make that happen. But on stage, I totally overcompensated, went the other direction, and, and tried to be like my version of like larger than life. And I think a lot of that kind of, if you're, and also when you're tall. So if you're tall, if you're tall, and your and your job is to be in front of people doing something, and you're super shy, that usually, I think that usually translates as looking like confidence but it's in my case it was usually it was the polar opposite 
no, that's really, I, I really appreciate you laying it out like that because I do think it's real. I mean, just like I did with you, it's real easy to look at a person, you know, on stage and seeing how they are as a person. And, you know, one would mostly surmise that there is a version of yourself that is put up there, but it's, you know, somewhat consistent or at least shades of it. But then it's like, you know, one of my, you know, favorite frontman slash guitarist of all time, where it's like, you know, John Reese from Rocket from the Crypt. It's like, you know, he's this overgrandized character on stage. And like, yeah, he's a diff- he's a more maybe muted version of that. But um, you have to be able to um, put yourself out there in a way that's like, okay, like I have, you know, there's no way that playing in a band and being at the center of attention that people are going to, um, you know, not like you if you're just like, you know, up there being super timid and being like, oh, I'm, hey, we're the Juliana Theory. And it's like, yeah, people are probably not attracted to that that sort of energy, you know? It's weird, too, because I, I really feel like, in general, my only... <laughs> My only real confidence in life for many years only did come from doing things musically because I don't, don't like. I mean, I was good at school or whatever, but I don't really feel like I was. A t- I wanted to be an athlete growing up, and I played hockey and I sucked. And like, I, I if if I if I'm being honest, that's what in my dreams I was like. I would be an NHL player, but I was terrible. Um, and I think like so as years go by, the only thing that I felt that I was good at was music related things. And so the only times that I did get any bits of confidence were from things relating to music. But of course that's also a double edged sword because if your whole, you know, if most of your sense of self worth is tied into being able to do one thing, and if that one thing is waning or failing commercially or whatever that is, then, you know, it's not necessarily a very healthy path to go down. So, you know, you grow up and you realize what, you know, you can't just base your, you know, you can't, I can't just be Brett from the Juliana theory, Brett from X, I, I have to be Brett and then you know, those are things that I do or whatever, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it took, it makes sense to me anyways. Yeah. Oh no, I, I wholeheartedly agree, especially too, because I think that when, you know, especially at the age where you are, when you're, you know, when you were playing in those bands and when frankly anybody is playing in bands, you know, it's between the ages of whatever, 16 to 25 when you're like maybe touring the most and most active or whatever. And that you don't have the emotional, intelligence to be able to separate like you know like you said the ego that is you know brett from the juliana theory versus brett as a human being and sometimes like those things get mixed in together and then people start to buy into who they are as the person in the band as who as opposed to who they are as an actual person totally i think that definitely comes with time and it comes with maturity and it's why and it's really easy i'm i i think it's easy for humans in general to just to judge other people because that's just what we do it's it's easy for me to look at somebody else and see somebody doing something and say oh they're you know whatever but i think i've tried as i've gotten older i try to relate things to my own experience and i and i try to think like well you know if 
if I was X years old and I had this, this, and this happen to me at this point in time, and I was raised in this city where I was, or had this set of parents or whatever, uh, you know, that expression, I always try to remember there, what, what is it? Therefore go I, but by the grace of God, basically like I could be any other person if I didn't have like my story and didn't wasn't raised the way I was raised. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's, it's pretty easy to, it's pretty easy to judge some, uh, you know, it's pretty easy to look at Justin Bieber for instance and say, well, well, dude's like an entitled asshole and he just gets away with whatever he does and his life is totally nuts. But I think like if you were famous from 12 years old and you literally have 50 yes people around you your whole life and everywhere you go, people are like screaming like your name. Like I couldn't imagine yet what you're saying, the emotional maturity and the, the mental maturity. I couldn't imagine like how you're supposed to survive that. You know what I mean? Like, that's just not normal. That's just not how, I don't know how we got on the topic of Bieber. I just, no, no, that's a, <laughs> no, that's a total, that's a very, very relevant. I mean, it's the same argument that people put forth with child actors and stuff like that. And, you know, very few are able to make it through that, uh, that prism and come out the other end, a, you know, semi well-adjusted human being, because like you said, they're surrounded by people who are, you know, um, are, it's just not a real true life experience, you know? So I, I, I totally understand that. And like on a microcosm level, that's exactly what, you know, we an in independent music experience because, you know, yeah, there's not the world stardom, but you know, there's still the notion of getting on a stage and entertaining and having people look up to you in some capacity. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky thing. So, um, I mean, I look at even like, forget even pop music world, but I look at like one of the biggest reasons that I played, rock music was metallica and i did that hit like metallica and iron maiden hit me like at a right when i was like i don't know can't remember exactly how old probably like 12 or 13 and i heard that and i think of like and i think of like how many times i've seen lars from metallica come out in an interview whether it had to do with streaming music or whatever it was say something in a way the way he delivered it and what he said to where I was just like, what planet does Lars live on? But then I literally think <laughs> Lars has been in the biggest rock band in the world since he was whatever, 17 years old and has never known <laughs> what life was without being in the biggest band in the world. So how can, you know, you know, like how can you even like, I can't even put myself in those shoes to understand where, oh, I get it, why he thinks, like, downloading music or streaming music is so awful because there's such a value. Oh, there's so many people that value what he did to such a crazy level. But, yeah, it's just like, it's, it's, uh, so sometimes it's hard. It's hard to do, but I, I really try to sometimes just do that. Think, like, okay, well, put myself in. Lars Ulrich shoes for a minute and um, <laughs> being, you know, whatever. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. So today's show is brought to you by Simple Mobile. And I'm, I'm fairly certain that I'm talking to the right people here when I'm saying that music is integral to summer, whether it's like, you know, hanging out with friends by the pool, whether it's like, you know, going out to a show and being like, well, first of all, I do not recommend this. If you listen to a band that you are going to see that evening, don't do it. It's bad luck. 
But if you know you're going to a show and you want to get some hype up music, whatever the case may be, Simple Mobile is an amazing partner for all of your mobile, digital, wireless plan needs for anything that you are doing with a phone. So they offer nationwide coverage on a blazing, blazing fast 4G LTE network so you can access, you know, news, you can access music, anything you want, even downloading this very podcast. So do that whenever, wherever. And then their unlimited high-speed data plan is just $50 for 30 days. So if you just want to sign up for that, you get $50 for that amazing high-speed data plan. And it's awesome because then you'll have additional money to spend on shows, vinyl, whatever it is that you need to supplement your summer with. And then it also gives you the freedom to do what you love, whether it's you know streaming, sharing, posting, swiping, texting, talking, you name it. Thanks to their unlimited data plans, Simple Mobile has you absolutely covered. So please always refer to the latest terms and conditions of service at simplemobile.com. But seriously, this company is awesome. They know what they're doing. They are giving you cheap access to blazing fast data across the country. And uh, yeah, I, I love what they do. And I love the fact that I can be working with them all summer on this this rad plug and faith in music in general. That's I, I just love that. That's what this company is all about. So please check out simplemobile.com and dive in, okay? I'll, I'll get you covered the whole summer. So <laughs> there, Simple Mobile's awesome. And here's the rest of the conversation. You know, as you started to uh, get out and play shows with, um, you know, Pensive and Zao and everything, like your, you know, your first sort of touring experiences, did you immediately take to the road or was that, again, something that you uh, had to learn how to enjoy and, you know, kind of, you know, kind of going back to what you were saying where, you know, you had to force yourself to talk to people. Um, was that all kind of, uh, you know, part of that uh, learning process of, of touring? The, f- the forcing myself to talk to people, that took years and... I'm literally still, still have to psych myself up when I go somewhere and like give myself like an inner monologue of do not just stand and lean on this wall. But, um, the actual, like going on tour and getting in a van and going like, you know, going from city to city and play shows each day, uh, that immediately resonated with me. As soon as I did it, uh, I, and when we, you know, when I, my first tours were with Zayo and they were as unglamorous as any version of touring could possibly be to us. Some of the places that we played are hilarious and just like the hardcore scene at that point in time, the vehicle we drove, how many times we would break down, how like the places we would, the floors we slept on, everything about it was so like low rent and it was basically but i didn't care it felt amazing because it was the first time that i really got to you know i didn't really go to college so i was like you know maybe 19 years old and that was really the first time that i'm seeing i'm seeing america for the first time it's the first time i'm getting to do something that i like whoa i was a part of this i helped create this song and then there's people that want to hear this and so I took to that right away for sure. Nice. That's awesome. Um, and then I'm sure, you know, like you said, when you were doing a Zale, like, you know, clearly the, the places you were playing, like, you know, you started to see more people come out. Um, 
you know, when did you feel like uh, that first kind of wave of momentum where you were like, hey, this thing that we put together, it will, you know, it's kind of resonating with people. Um, even if it's on like such a small level, it didn't matter. It's just you got that that jolt of like, wow, that's cool. I feel I can pinpoint kind of like two two times for me probably. The first was when I first joined Zayo, I was an I was like a I replaced the original guitar player. And so they had a kind of had a record or almost two records out before I was in the band. And so when we first I first started touring with them, we were playing mostly those songs. But at around the same time, all the new guys that joined the band, because it ended up being almost a completely different band, except for the drummer, uh, we recorded this album called Where Blood and Fire Bring Rest. And I remember going out on tour not very long after we recorded it. And again, there's no, there's no file sharing. That doesn't exist yet at this point, at least not on the internet. But I remember our record went viral via cassette tape and i know that sounds totally crazy now but we would show up in places where we had recorded this album two months ago and it wasn't due to come out for like three more months but we made a few copies for our friends on cassette tape and people would just started copying it and giving it to like everybody they knew that liked hardcore and we would just start showing up at shows and Every kid would know every word from this record that wasn't out yet. And the only way they knew it was from copying a cassette tape copy of a copy of a copy. And that completely blew my mind. And I remember that when that record sort of, that just was like one, a record that resonated with people in that community. I mean, it certainly wasn't like some commercial success, but it was, uh, it was definitely like a cult kind of record that sort of hit at a right moment and i definitely i definitely remember that standing out as one moment and then the other one that for me that stands out is juliana theory's second record we did understand this is a dream was our first album and and people we definitely got some fans from that and people were coming out to shows but very soon after we released Emotion is Dead, which we thought, honestly, we thought that people weren't going to like it because we kind of changed our direction a good bit from our first record. And it was very shortly after it came out, I remember shows immediately, attendance would double from the last time we were there, if not more. And that was one of those times where we're like, whoa, you know, this is this is pretty cool. It's definitely stood out. Yeah, no, that's really cool. I, I like those 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 pinpoint moments, just because. Uh, yeah, I, I think people that experience releasing art into the world and they have those little jolts of just like not even so much like oh we played in front of ten thousand people or like you know my art opening went so well. It's just like oh yeah, I remember where all of a sudden there was like one hundred fifty people when we played in front of like ten last time or whatever. It's just those those moments are so crystal clear. I I, I love that you were able to pinpoint those. Um, the uh, you know when uh, you know, your your career's definitely been you know well documented in regards to um you know people discussing you know each record and what they meant to you and um as you started to you know progress further on in regards to you know once you left tooth and nail and went to a major label um 
was there like did you ever have i guess a good business sense about you in regards to um you know uh the business of the band or was that something you always felt that was left better in uh you know other people's hands like was that something that you ever i guess actively cared about i actively cared about it for sure and 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 i was definitely the probably the most intimate with that of yeah of any of us were just because i was usually the point person with management and booking agents and whatnot so i definitely cared about the business of the band but i wouldn't say that i'm a good businessman so i think i definitely always cared about what i used to consider the word legacy i used to care about the 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 name of the band and the legacy of the band and what that meant to people what now everybody would say well that's your brand you you care about the brand and that word still slightly i find that annoying like a slightly annoying word when it comes to music because i understand that music is absolutely when you're trying to write poppy songs there's no question that it is it is an intersection of commerce and art but still like that word brand still you know it just it's slightly rubs me just a tiny bit wrong when it comes to music but i but i get it and so i definitely was aware of that and and tried to take care of our business for the most part but at the same time i never had a very good sense of I think you got to be pretty cutthroat to really do business, to do business right. I mean, honestly, that's what capitalism is. The people that succeed in capitalism, for the most part, are people who aren't afraid to step on anybody else to get the maximum amount of profits for their corporation or whatever. And so, when it comes to anything like that, then I'm, I'm pretty much a terrible business person. Hmm. So that's a that's a we you know we and our band made so many what i would call business mistakes too in in our history like just making bad choices i think we made a lot of dumb choices business-wise so yeah (laughs) jury's out on that one well yeah i mean it's hard too because the uh, you know usually the pressure for the you know point of contact in the band usually is the singer just because it's you know it's kind of that weird default thing where it's like oh yeah that's the person that's probably interacting the most and then sometimes it gets thrust upon a person where they're just like I, listen i don't like it's not that i don't care about it like i'm invested in it but it's something that really distracts me from what it is that i would like to do which is you know just being creative um and so i i totally empathize with where you're coming from it's like i had a i had a i had a one hour long conference call last night with you know, like four, four managers and people. And that is a very regular part of my job. But, um, and I like to be aware of what's going on and I'm totally cool handling that stuff and being the point person. But if, if somebody could say you could write a song today or you could have three business meetings, there's zero question in my mind at any point in time, what I, what I would do, you know? I would always write the song and I would always play the show over all that other stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and then kind of like what we were talking about before I started to record in regards to, uh, you know, where I first actually officially met you was, you know, on the, uh, deadbeat sweetheart beat record cycle. Um, 
and I, I mean, I was already a fan of, of what you were doing musically. Um, I especially like I I know that probably some people look at the you know music from another room EP as being like, oh, that was a cute like experimental thing. But I goddamn love that EP. I just loved what you guys did with it, where it's like, yeah, clearly these songs don't fit really on you know a lot of the stuff that we previously did but it was um i just thought a really good representation of you know where the band could kind of go um so anyways there's a little compliment there but (laughs) thank you very no thank you very much i i appreciate that and it's odd there is there is a decent sized faction of people who feel the same way you feel that really like i hear that way more than i would think that i would hear that and Interestingly enough, or maybe not that interesting, but those were supposed to be two. Those were supposed to be two independently released seven inches, and that was originally the plan. I believe we were talking to Initial Records and Revelation about putting those two out because we wanted. I just remember at that point in time, we thought we we felt we felt very pigeonholed by Tooth and Nail and by certain associations, and we were like, you know. There's all these other labels that we like and we think you're cool. And I'm like, well, if we do something with Initial, they did Elliot and whatever, and we do something with Revelation, that would be cool. And maybe it'll help, like, you know, just be, just put a different vibe out there. And that's what we were trying to do originally with those. But then when we got the offer from, well, when we were going to sign to Epic, Tooth and Nail basically was trying to fight to keep us on the label, keep us in our deal. And part of the way that, you know, part of our concession concession to them was to give them the songs that were going to be that EP and, or those separate, like seven inches. And then I think maybe add one more or two more. I can't remember and turn it into that EP. So that's why, that's why in a way, that I think there's some cool songs on there, but it doesn't, it, every other thing we did record wise was conceptualized. And my solo records are the same way where in my head, they go together as a group of songs. And I know a lot of people don't care about albums anymore. And we we live in a singles world and that's totally cool. But in my head, all of our records had some sort of thing that linked them to one another song wise. And there was like a cohesive vibe to me and music from another room was not necessarily that. Like it, it to me, it felt like these are some interesting songs, and they kind of go together. But it didn't have what I would have considered like this running sort of theme that tied them together. But yeah. again, that's completely that's my perception, and that's just I'm one person, so who knows? No, no, I, I appreciate that context. I mean, it made like you. I never knew that about the the EP, but it totally makes where you wanted to work with these other cool labels and you had these songs and then you're just like well i guess we'll just throw these together because it you know that's kind of where we're at right now but um but then the uh, the you know working with you guys on the you know deadbeat sweetheart beat record um the i i i'm my perception is colored because you know i was working the record so of course i'll have these emotional attachments to it and i really enjoyed what you guys were to me it was a combination of what you guys were doing you know at the beginning of the band while also what you were doing on the love record, which a lot of people, you know, could either, you know, take or leave. <laughs> but the, you know, I, I could definitely tell uh, kind of what you were talking about initially of just being like, the, the wind might have been a little out of your guys' sails because you're like, okay, like we have a really strong record, but like 
the grind of getting ready for tour and promoting it and all that stuff, I, you know, the enthusiasm was there to an extent, but I could definitely feel it being like a lot harder from maybe a motivation standpoint. You guys felt like that fire burning in your belly. Um, it, it, you know, am, am I correct on that characterization, or was that something that um, you know maybe? I'd just- say you're pretty you're you're fairly correct. We still felt very passionate at that point and we felt very strong about the band and i will say unequivocally that up until our 2010 six or seven shows we did in 2010 that was by far the best the band had ever sounded at that point and we were like touring on that record but we felt like what we really felt like was okay we're on tooth and nail we're this odd band that doesn't fit in because we're not a Christian band and we don't want to be in the Christian market and we won't be sold in Christian bookstores, which is where they sell the most of their stuff. And they don't really know what to do with us. They don't know how to market us. So we felt like, okay, we're kind of this island unto ourselves. So then we are like, okay, well now we're jumping to a major label and they're going to have a budget and they're going to actually spend and do things to promote the band and so then we signed epic and make our record and then our a&r guy gets fired and the company basically we lose our biggest cheerleader and the rest of the companies like yeah we're not really feeling this record we want you to make another one so we continue so we're that's like that's record three and the and the phase of of Oh, we don't. People don't really know what to do with you, or we're not going to really push you. Happens again, and then we make Deadbeat, and for whatever reason, that system at Abacus didn't seem, no offense, set up at all to handle us, or just set up in general in the right way at that moment, and it felt like record four. And, and oh, and in between that, actually, we signed to another label before that, and then they and you know flew down. We actually it was Ryko Disc, and we flew down to meet with Ryko. At that point, they were like a they put out like all the Flaming Lips catalog and a bunch of they they had a bunch of amazing things in their catalog. But they were like, oh, we got this new guy who's running it. We want to be a we want to put out a bunch of new artists and we you're going to be our flagship like flagship first artist that's current that we're going to get behind so we do the dog and pony show we fly down to where they're at we do hang out with everybody get to know the whole company they're all pumped we're going to do this this and this two months after we sign we hadn't even made the record yet we get a call. Yep, we changed direction. We're not going to work on new artists. We're just going to stick with being a catalog. So that's so that's out record deal number three. Then right after that, we signed to Epic or signed to Abacus, and that was very uh, just just didn't seem like just there was just nothing connecting at that point in time. So I think like we just were. It was four albums in nine years of of always feeling like well when we do the next thing we'll finally have somebody who will really have our back and we'll be able to spend money to shoot music videos or spend money to to promote songs to radio mm-hmm. and you know in 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 abacus's defense as crazy as it sounds that's the only music video we ever got to do abacus made a video for us it was like epic 
we had a hundred thousand dollar budget in our contract guaranteed to shoot a music video and they just wouldn't do it so it was like things like that you're like you're yeah you've never that's so you just blew my mind by saying that because it's like in my head i'm like oh yeah you guys have done at least one or two videos prior to to that but oh my gosh that's wild so yeah you got to think about that is the era of music videos and we are just every every time like oh we have songs that are like epic tests does the whole test your songs to see if they'll be hits things and four songs come back as hits tested as hits at three radio formats do they release a single no so it's literally am i bitter no but what i'm saying to put to put you in our headspace was we always felt like well the next thing that happens we'll finally get the 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 push that everybody we're friends with is getting we'll finally get uh we'll finally get to have videos that are pushed to mtv we'll finally get a song that's pushed to radio we'll finally get um all these things and it it was basically like each time we're working as hard as we can making the best songs we can really focusing on being the best band we can possibly be and then more or less feeling like are feeling like our management is working really hard and feeling like our booking agent is working really hard and feeling like there are absolutely at each label we were at without a doubt there were champions for us at all of those labels but every time their hands were tied we always had people who passionately believed in us and we were so thankful that we had everywhere we were but every time for whatever reason they couldn't get the big guns to like you know line up behind us or whatever it was and so i think more than anything else it wasn't that we were less passionate about music or we were less excited about the band it's literally we felt like we've done all we can up until this point and if we don't get any help or we don't get any more help than we are getting there's really nothing else that we can do and that's what we were starting to feel by the time deadbeat had by the time we thought we were on one label for deadbeat and then we weren't and then we're on an, and then we you know make the record pay for it ourselves and then end up signing to abacus and mm-hmm. once all of that happened after all that succession of time we just i think at the most probably felt like just kind of beat up i'm being honest oh yeah no i totally i totally get where you're coming from because yeah it's it's it definitely isn't for lack of trying that that record, um, you know, was, you know, it was successful to a certain extent because people, you know, got energized on you guys again, but not to the extent of, you know, it was able to inject a, you know, a whole new fan base where you guys were able to, you know, tour off it for the next three to five years or whatever. Um, but yeah, no, I totally understand where you're coming from. And that's, uh, you know, I appreciate laying out those thoughts like that. Um, and so then like, you know, after, after Juliana Theory, you know, winds down and you're, um, you know, at that point, had you moved to L.A. officially during that record cycle or were you uh, like how long have you been living there? I moved in 2007. OK, got it. LA. Yeah. Um, and so did you, you know, I, I, there's always that feeling like once you have left a band that you've you know spent so much time with, um, you know, a feeling of like you're adrift, like you don't know what to do. Um, or, you know, maybe that it was also a relief in some respects because you were like, oh, wow, now I've got a lot of time to concentrate on other things that I hadn't had time to do. Um, where was your head at after you were kind of exiting uh, the Juliana theory? I, my head was totally lost for a while. And that goes back to that thing we were talking about where my identity was so tied to that because, you know, it's like 
you like I, I was very I was not social at all then, and I and I really only had friends in the band, and most of my day was consisted of like writing songs and trying to figure out what we were going to do on tour with management and whatnot, and so always or recording or whatever. So when all when that stopped, it. And when it stopped, I moved not too long after, and so suddenly you're in a place where you don't know anybody, and you're not with the group of friends that you've been with every day for nine, ten years in a van, and I grew up with most of those guys too, so we go back way way longer than that, and you're not... Um, you know, like that cycle is over, so it felt like, felt like a roller coaster just stopped completely that I had been on for years and it was pretty hard to adjust at first because when you're when you're doing like band work full time that literally means you're either making a record you're writing a record and rehearsing or you're on tour or rehearsing and there's always something to do and when all of a sudden that stops I well, it stopped and I also blamed myself for most of the band's failures and I felt like most of it was my fault and I also like felt like I sucked at songwriting and I kind of like just gave up on believing that I was a musician or believing that I was a writer or that I was a singer and so for a few years I just totally quit music completely and so yeah I don't think it it might have been a tiny bit liberating to not have to always follow that cycle, but it was not for most of us from what I've gathered with the exception of maybe one of us. I don't think it was that positive of an experience like breaking up and then not being a band at all after that many years of doing it. So it was pretty, it was pretty weird. It was culture shock, especially when that's your entire that was my entire adult life up yeah. until that point. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. Totally. Um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm sure just because you were, um, you know, adjusting to life without a band and everything like that, you know, you were still, you know, probably observing, you know, the music world and, you know, consuming music from that perspective. So once you started to notice the, you know, I guess the more, you know, mainstream attention to, um, this particular, you know, music scene, emo rock, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, as that started to kind of spring its head in, you know, 2010, 2011, um, is it, and then now what you're experiencing in, you know, the, the reunion tours and touring off, you know, doing the, the anniversary tours that you guys have been doing. Um, is it, is it kind of bizarre for you to look at this and be like, wow, like, I, I can't believe this many people are, are not only showing up to our shows, but then, you know, there's a huge thing, you know, obviously in LA, like you were well aware of the, you know, emo night and all that stuff. Like, um, how does that all kind of sit in your head? Is that just like weird for you to observe that? Or is it just like, Hey, I guess we'll, you know, enjoy it while it's here. Well, fingers crossed. I mean, we, we've not, we've not played any, we haven't played yet. And it's been the last time, last time we did anything was, seven years ago right. and now it was like a really short run and we're hitting a bunch of places this summer on on this 20 year anniversary tour which is crazy to think of but we're hitting a bunch of places that we haven't been in 11 or 12 years so i'm you know i'm curious to see 
I, I'm curious to see how it's how it's going to go. But it is very crazy to me to think that that I see tweets or Facebook posts or Instagram messages and emails from people saying that something that we did 17 years ago resonates in their life at this point in time, especially when Juliana Thierry's intention when we started out was to make a three-song demo tape and play one show. And that was our honest goal because we were a side project of other bands. So to think now that 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 people still care and that people have like, you know, that I hear that people say, oh, we named our child after your band. Like things like that is kind of totally, that's insane. Right. And so... Um, I think, I think the whole, uh, yeah, I'm definitely taken, I was definitely taken back when I initially heard about the fact that there's emo nights all over the country and other countries too. Like that It's like, what? That's really weird. Cause I remember, you know, I remember going to see bands that would now be considered, you know, like cornerstone acts of emo. Like I remember sneaking in to see the, I remember sneaking in to see what was it? The get up kids and the promise ring together. No, no. Texas is a reason in the promise ring together. And there was like, you know, a hundred people there. I remember seeing, um, yeah, Jimmy world and the get up kids in Pittsburgh. And we had to sneak in our guitar player, and the only way to sneak him in was the get up kids were like, here, take two of our guitars and carry them in because he was 14, I think. <laughs> right. And we, and I, and I remember going to that show and I remember there being, you know, a hundred, you know, there's a hundred people at that show. And to think that now that every week or whatever in New York city or in Brooklyn, you could go to emo night and there's a bunch of 21 year old kids that were barely alive when that was happening are like stoked to listen to that music and sing along is pretty, it's pretty cool. It's pretty, uh, it's kind of, it's kind of awesome. Yeah. It's, it's wild because it's not like there is a, uh, feeling of nostalgia, you know, it's like it make, I mean, I'm 36 years old and like, I mean, I've, I've never been to one of the, you know, emo nights in Los Angeles, but it's like, you know, it's a very young demographic, and it's like, you know, for people like you and I, like listening to bands of that era is nostalgic for us. But then like when you're 21 years old, it's like, there's no nostalgia. Like you just like recently, you know, within the past five or six years got into it because you were of age where you could find music. And it's so, um, it's so cool because like, it's essentially like them watching these bands perform live at some, you know, weird conglomeration of a party. So it's like, it's so, it, it is interesting to watch that. I think it all, you know, sometimes I think that the whole thing makes no sense and, and it's funny, but then I also look back at me being a kid and going to like new wave dance nights and I didn't, you know, on music that was a generation before me and me think that music was amazing or growing up and thinking Led Zeppelin and the Who and Pink Floyd were like the greatest bands on earth, but they didn't, 
you know, but I, I wasn't around when I could see them play. So I, so I totally get it. And I guess, you know, in the context of, I'm, I'm really like, I'm pretty, I'm a pretty big fan of pop music in general. And I, I, I listen to, you know, a decent amount of modern, like just straight up pop. So I, there is something still to be said for the rawness of indie rock emo kind of music. Even like when we were trying to be the most pop version of our band and the most like polished pop version of our band, it's not even, it's not even comparable to what modern pop music is now as far as like how polished and how made in a computer no offense it's not i'm not i'm not slagging that but i'm just saying it's just like I, that's just a different thing so the idea of like being able to go and hear this music that was made probably by people who are really like <laughs> sweating playing instruments and <laughs> and kind of like belting at the top of their voice as opposed to just being like laid back chill mumble rap or whatever yeah. which also like some of that too so i'm not yeah but I mean, there's, yeah, there's a, there's a, there's, there's, there was definitely a catharsis to scene music for, for lack of a better word, whether, whether it was like, um, uh, you know, going to, I, I certainly remember, I, I certainly remember going and seeing like hardcore bands and like, like screaming along with, with like the music. And, and it's like, I, 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 I just DJed emo night LA like two nights ago and it was, it's not the same as that, but it's still like it still comes from that same primal place of just like let go, yeah, have fun, like release your emotions and forget about other things and just let it be about music and also that sense of community that the same reason why it's better to watch a movie in a movie theater and it's better to see or like why do my teams in the Stanley Cup final and why would I why I'd rather go and watch the game at the arena or even at a sports bar than I would in my house just because it's that saying that communal thing about music. So I get, I definitely, I get it. I get it for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the last thing I want to hit on was the, uh, you know, you've definitely, you know, removing the Juliana theory, you've definitely been, you know, active in music still, whether it's like your solo project stuff or, you know, the, the scoring you've done and the work that you've done on, you know, like television and stuff like that. Um, you know, has that been, um, I guess, has that side been enjoyable for you in regards to kind of the creation? Like, again, maybe removing your, your solo project stuff because that is, you know, an exercise in exactly what it is you want to do. Um, how is the you sort of, um, you know, targeting a certain style of music because, you know, you are writing for this particular, you know, whatever, whether it's a commercial or television show or anything like that. Um, have you enjoyed that aspect of it too? No, I definitely have, especially like the film scoring side of things, which I've, uh, I've done a few of, has been, it's, it's such a different, it's such a different discipline because when I first, when I first started, like when the first movie score stuff I did, I had to separate myself from song mentality because I, I, you know, I grew up making everything was song based and it's about you know, it's about what is a vocal going to do and how's this going to make somebody feel and uh, you want to repeat this part a couple times because it's a chorus. And when you're trying to write something to picture, obviously there's probably not going to be any vocals, but 
too, it's like your job is to tell the director's story and to, and to help and to help facilitate the vision of what that what the storytelling is doing, what the movie is, what that scene is, what you're trying to fill in the gaps between a few things that weren't said directly on screen or you're trying to downplay something uh but it's it's a totally different discipline obviously it's music and it's musically based but it comes from such a different place and it's also when you're working hand in hand with a with a director and sometimes editors and and producers your job as a as a composer is to put their vision into the world and you put your stamp on it and you do you're doing your own version of that but your but your ultimate job is to tell the story that they want to tell and that's really challenging and also rewarding and it's a lot of hard work and it's really fun but it's it's totally different yeah than than writing the music that you want to write for yourself or for your band because it's yeah just because it's such a different thing yeah absolutely but it's cool and it, ha- have you been able to i guess sustain yourself by uh doing those sort of projects or like have you had other sort of you know side jobs gigs like other explorations of of stuff that you um do yeah we so right right as the band broke up we ran a vintage store for about three years and that was that was at that same point where i thought that i gave up that I, I quit music and I suck. And after after that is I kind of went went back and started, you know, wrote wrote my first record and started touring on that stuff and and then started doing the movie stuff at a similar time period. And so I've pretty much done pretty much mostly only music. Nice, very cool, very cool. Well, dude, I really really appreciate you hanging out, and uh, I probably could talk to you for another hour, but uh, I don't want to punish uh, punish youth like that. So. Um, you don't want to punish everybody else. It's the real. No. Is the real thing. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not true. It's I just you know, try 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 to be respectful of other people's time. You know, I don't care about the listener. I just care about you. Uh, <laughs> but honestly, thank you so much for doing this. I really uh, appreciate you hanging out, and being so uh, open and honest about everything. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It was a great talk. There you have it. That was Brett. And um, yeah, nothing more to say about that, right? Just a a very interesting guy. And I really enjoyed the line of questions that I was able to throw at his direction just because, um, yeah, he's, and I'm running into this a lot because, you know, frankly, there, and I've discussed this kind of, I wouldn't say at length, but maybe in a few other episodes where, you know, you start to see certain people appearing on all of the like-minded shows that exist within independent music and stuff like that. And uh, I like how this show has staked out a corner where, you know, we don't need to tread on some of the same questions that not only happen in other interviews, but, um, yeah, we can kind of veer when everyone else is, uh, you know, everyone, like, not like every single show is entering the same, uh, line of questioning but uh yeah i just I, I like i like where this show has carved itself out and i'm I'm very happy with that and i'm glad that people are are interested in playing along and that's where that's what brett did so thank you very much and um yeah that's what we got for that next week on the show is a very very good one chadwick johnson who's currently hanging out on warp tour with his band hundredth um i i always wanted him on the show and you know got spoken to by their publicist and sent me the record and i love the record 
band did a complete 180 from what they did from metallic hardcore to now a shoegazy thing and um yeah i just really like this conversation so i can't wait to share it with you and uh please support the music of this show which is lowercase noises i'm actually going to see him perform this evening at chain reaction which i'm very excited about so he 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 provides all the music for the show and i can't thank him enough for that so yeah check him out lowercase noises.com and um yeah that's what we got so Enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy the rest of your summer. And I'll see you next week with another great episode. All right. Talk to you soon. Be safe. Bye. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.